The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone, from rainy New York City uh, on this uh, December day. We are uh, going to be discussing one of the more intriguing elements of contemporary archaeology, and that is faunal analysis, and specifically the analysis of animal bones and what they tell us about the human condition. Um, My guest on this program is a colleague that I've known for years and somebody who is a very accomplished professional in this field, Dr. Pam Crabtree, who is an associate professor at anthropology at New York University. She earned her Ph.D. in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania, and her primary area of research has focused on the study of animal bone remains from Anglo-Saxon sites in southeast England, and she has used this strategy in a variety of ways, but primarily as a way of understanding early medieval animal husband practices, hunting patterns, and diet. She has worked all over the place, all over the world. She has worked with us on a number of projects in New York City here and in the old world. Um, It's my pleasure to have you on the program, Pam. Thank you for appearing. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. Let's start with something that actually we hadn't talked about. What got you interested in the analysis of animal bones at archaeological sites? That's a great question, and it was not by any means a straight-line approach. I really, My undergraduate degree is actually in medieval art history, and I chose, I've always been interested in the early Middle Ages, and I realized um, at an early point in my college career that I did not want to spend the rest of my life reading Beowulf or working in the archives. <laughs> so I majored in medieval art as a way of getting at material culture. And while I was an undergrad, I had the chance to dig um, in the Winchester excavations in England, and I realized this was really what I wanted to do. So I um, went back to college and took some anthropology, some archaeology, and applied to Penn and was lucky enough to be accepted and when I'd applied, I really wanted to do Anglo-Saxon settlement patterns um, because one of the things that I had learned from Winchester was that you really could not see continuity between the Roman and the post-Roman world in 
many of the English urban sites, but I thought there was a possibility of looking for continuity in the rural settlement. And I spent about a year and a half trying to do the best I could in the long-before-GIS world uh, when I was just working with maps and site plans and so on. And while I was a grad student, I was asked to take human osteology, which was required of all the first-year PhD students. And as an art historian, I was terrified. I had never worked with bone before. But because I was an art historian, I have a really good visual memory, and I did surprisingly well in the course. And so I took a second human osteology course, and then in my second year, I had the chance to take faunal analysis and work with animals. And I realized that this was another way to really understand human settlement patterns because by looking at the kind of animals they kept and the kind of animals that they ate, you could get a sense of how people made use of the environment. So it was really sort of a roundabout way. And when I went looking for a PhD topic, I was offered the material from the early Anglo-Saxon West Stowe site, which was one of the sites I'd always been interested in in terms of settlement. So not exactly a direct line. Right, and uh, what I was going to get at with that is when you started doing this, and this is not not to date anyone, but uh, yeah, right, okay, let's put it that way, because I go back to that time frame as well. And if I recall, uh, on many classic archaeological sites, because I worked on one of them, um, bones, animal bones in particular, were simply not considered very major items. And I remember having worked on one medieval site actually, in Israel, where they actually threw them out. Well, this was one advantage I had with West Stowe, because the excavator was um, Dr. Stanley West, and he was at the time completing his Ph.D. at Cambridge. And he had been in Cambridge and had worked with Eric Higgs. So one of the nice things was that um, Higgs, who taught a whole generation of faunal analysts in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and so... Um, Stanley West realized the importance of animal bones, and unlike sites where they were still chucking them out, he really saved everything. So I had something like 170,000 animal bone fragments from um, about eight years of excavation. It was a huge wow. assemblage. But yeah. he had really, he was somebody who was really interested in this, and he had said to me early on, isn't this a great deal that, you know, two of us are getting our PhDs out of working on this site, so... But, you know, it's interesting. I mean, what I'm getting at with this mm -hmm. is when they were chucking them out, obviously they didn't understand the potential no. of animal bone analysis, uh, faunal analysis, for reconstructing diet, landscapes, environments, the change through time in, in the human condition in a variety of different aspects and avenues. So when you began doing this, did you have a direction? Did you have a focus on what you were going to look for when you did these analysis and how they would actually be performed? I did, and I was very lucky because some of the um, sort of major methods and um, in terms of figuring out how old animals were when they died and how we measure them, were developed in the years right before I started my Ph.D. research. So basically the project I set out to do was I was really interested in whether there were significant changes in diet, in animal husbandry, and in hunting between the late Roman period and the early Anglo-Saxon period. And so I set out to look at four things. And the first was just basically what is, what is in the early Anglo-Saxon diet? You know, what are the range of animals 
How many of them are herded animals, cattle, goats, sheep, pigs? How many of them are hunted animals like deer? Um, I was interested in wild birds. I was interested in um, and how that would have differed from what we knew, what had existed in the previous Roman period. I was interested in what the Anglo-Saxons were doing with their animals. Um, were they keeping them for milk, for meat, for wool, for some combination of the two? And that was particularly important for Westo, for my site, because in the first few seasons of excavation, they had come up with several what were, seemed to be weaving huts. They had loom emplacements, and they had big um, collections of ceramic loom weights. And the question was, was this some kind of specialized weaving settlement? Um, and then I was interested in how big the animals were, because we knew that the Romans um, improved the breeds of cattle, sheep, and pigs, and whether that size improvement continued into the Roman period. And then finally, what did we know about butchery? Because what I now know, 40 years later, um, is that the Romans really had very specialized, standardized butchery practices, and did those standardized practices continue into the post-Roman period? Are we still looking at specialized butchers? So those were the four things I really set out to look at. And, and that was terra incognita at the time, obviously. It was completely. I had absolutely no comparando whatsoever for the early Saxon period. That is the period between about 450 um, and about 700 CE. Uh, right. The closest comparanda I had were that at the time I was doing my re research, a colleague, Jennifer Bordillon, was working on the somewhat later 8th and 9th century Middle Saxon material from um, Hamwick, which is Anglo-Saxon Southampton, and that was as close as I had at the time. And a handful but, of Roman sites that have been um, analyzed with greater or lesser um, detail. There but, was... It was completely terra incognita. Right, but by then that's what I'm. I guess what yeah. I'm asking here, in a more general scale, is how extensively, at the time that you began, did researchers, even in senior positions, understand the potential for faunal analysis? I don't think they did. Um, particularly some of the senior um, medieval archaeologists in um, Europe. I mean, the focus had tended to be on architecture, ceramics, metals, burials, cemeteries. And the potential for this to understand, I think people assumed that, gee, we know, you know, the Anglo-Saxons kept cattle and sheep, and there isn't much to find out there. Um, and I think many of the, the model of really the older generation was that you really started from the literary texts and you moved to the archaeology, kind of what might be seeing archaeology as the handmaiden of history, as it's been described um, sometimes for historic archaeology. And for the post-Roman period, there are a handful of texts, most of them problematic, and none of them tell you anything about Anglo-Saxon husbandry and hunting. So the kinds of questions that people were asking at the time really was things like, the Venerable Bede, who wrote a history of the Anglo-Saxon church and people in mm -hmm. the, seventh, um, the early 700s, um, basically talks about Anglo-Saxons and Jutes. 
so people were looking archaeologically. Can we use metalwork to identify Angles and Saxons and Jutes and where they were? And is this really a Jutish brooch? And is this an Anglian type of jewelry? And really very historically based questions rather than the kinds that those of us whose background is really in prehistory might ask about settlement, subsistence, and technology. Right, and and on a larger scale, uh, it points to uh, a, a sort of a different mindset and a different module, and that is specifically going from a classic humanistic kind of perspective into a more sciencey kind of a thing, if you want to use it in very general sense. And 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 so my question to you is: mm-hmm. All right, so so we know that you're starting out and you're doing cutting edge stuff because obviously the dimensions and the scale of funnel analysis was in its infancy. So you go and you address a problem and say like the one you had uh, looking at this incredibly important transition from the Romans to the Anglos and Anglo-Saxons and what are you coming up with given that you're starting to do this kind of work and what are you able to tell from changes in the assemblage or in the composition of the animal remains that you are seeing between the two periods? Well, this I can say a lot more now than I could um, 40 years ago when I started this. Um, and part of that is because um, when you know everybody who starts a PhD is a little more ambitious than they ultimately can be, and it took me over a year and a half living in the UK just to work through the Anglo-Saxon stuff from West Stowe, along with a little bit of Roman material and a little bit of pre-Roman material from the site. And the other collection that I had hoped to work on was material from Icklingham, which was the next door, small, sort of third-level Roman town um, that is very close to West Stowe. Well, of course, I didn't finish it for my dissertation, and I've worked on it and finally uh, finished that material in the early 2000s. So Uh now I can really, you know, 40 years later, I can really see differences that I wasn't quite so sure I could see um, in back in the um, the 70s and 80s. One of the things we can see absolutely is that even in the Roman small towns, the material is being heavily butchered. I mean, these guys are taking heavy cleavers and really chopping the hell out of this stuff in very standardized ways. Whereas the Anglo-Saxon material really looks like individual farmers butchering small numbers of animals, probably on a seasonal basis. Second thing we can see, and this I could see even um, in the 70s when I was doing the initial work, is that the ages of the Anglo-Saxon animals really point to a pattern that is largely one of self-sufficiency. If you look, for example, at the sheep and goat, which are the most common of the animal remains, when I went into this, I thought, I might see the Anglo-Saxons being doing some kind of specialized weeding. But in fact, when you look at the animals, most are killed in the first and second year of life. Um, A smaller number are kept for milk um, and wool. But generally, it's a pattern that looks like most of this is being produced, consumed, and used locally. We see the same thing in the fish remains, for example. With one exception, virtually all the fish are the things that would be swimming in the local Lark River, something that you could put the br- a bread roll on the end of a hook and catch very easily. And there are not a lot of them. When I look at the Roman material, what I'm looking at, on the other hand, is stuff that's being drawn in from the countryside for a kind of market economy that I just don't see in the early Saxon material. 
So I'm really seeing some very interesting differences uh, between them. But it's something, another thing, for example, most of the early um, Saxon material has, it, most of the birds are chicken and geese, but we have a range of local wild birds, mostly water birds and waders, things like the East Anglian crane. When I look at the Roman stuff, um, when I see birds, a lot of them are birds that we would expect to find in, in small towns. We get a lot of the corvids, the families, the, the crow family. And those and crows and their relatives do really well in towns because they can feed on garbage. Mm. So really, real differences in a lot of things that I initially um, didn't expect to find, but I really did. I see and less continuity than I had probably hoped to when I started the project 40 years ago. Right, and we will be back with this very fascinating discussion on faunal remains and their use at archaeological sites and what our interpretive parameters are. Right after these words, we'll be right back. Stay tuned. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you are a dreamer aspiring to realize your dreams, join host Michael Friedlander for Dreamers, Winners, and Making a Difference. For Michael, to be a winner doesn't mean you must have finished first or must have great wealth, fame, and lots of toys. Instead, it means you must have realized your dreams without cheating or acting unethically. It means you must have made a difference for the better in the lives of those you've touched. Tune in to Dreamers, Winners, and Making a Difference, live every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are back with Dr. Pam Crabtree, an associate professor of anthropology at New York University right here in the greater metropolitan area and in in lower Manhattan, actually. Uh, We have been discussing uh, the use of animal bones, faunal analysis in the formal sense, to interpret archaeological sites and to, in fact, explore some of the broader implications of uh, evolution of landscapes, cities, communities, 
and what uh, the dietary assemblages and the uh, domestication potentials are of um, animals in, in various parts, uh, in various periods in time, and in various locations. And Dr. Crabtree has been discussing some of her earlier work in, in the UK, and I guess one of the really interesting elements that came out of what you had discussed earlier, in a sense, and this, this would be of, of some interest, I think, to people who are trying to learn the fundamentals of what, uh, what faunal analysis is, is that you had mentioned that um, during the Roman period, the types of cutting and the types of butchery practices that were uh, being undertaken in the Roman period, uh, were suggestive of a market economy, whereas when the Anglo-Saxons um, period, uh, the success of Anglo-Saxon period, we were looking at, in a sense, people who were essentially just exploiting what was around them. And I guess what jumps out is you can tell, basically, that the level of sophistication of the Roman Empire versus the Anglo-Saxon um, occupation was very, very different. And in a sense, it's... It, it, it would suggest to many people, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, that it's almost a step backward as you're looking at a different type of subsistence schedule and subsistence pattern. So let me hear you expound on that. It is, and I think in many ways it is, you know, what we really do see, um, and it's it, the formal remains show it and other things do, is that really the... Roman towns and cities, including a small town like Eglingham, as well as the big towns like London and Winchester, really lost much of their urban character in the late 4th to early 5th century. So that, you know, while you may have had um, British post-Roman polities existing in some of the areas like Lincoln, you really didn't have that urban life that was so fundamentally part of the Roman world. And you have a period, particularly in the 5th and 6th century, where you are really not looking at anything that I would call particularly a market economy, that most of what we seem to be seeing, and there are some exceptions in the west of Britain, but at least in eastern England, is really very local, very agricultural, very self-sufficient. But things begin to change again um, as early as about 600. So this is really a short period rather than something that I would want people to see as a truly dark age. Uh -huh. uh, by 600, surveys on both sides of the North Sea have shown that after about 600, you begin to see small trading settlements. So trade is increasing. When you get certainly to the 8th century, you begin to look at um, more specialized agricultural production. And this is the Westo work was really early in my career. And what I did in the early 90s was a Middle Saxon, that is roughly um, a 700 to 850 site called Brandon. And this was a very high status site. They were Christian. They were literate. And it might even have been monastic for part of its history. And what you see by that time is really a, um, a intensification and specialization in animal husbandry practices. You get a sheep age profile that includes a lot of animals between, that live to be between four and eight years of age. And one of the things we know is that maximum 
wool production is between about five and seven years. So what we see in the record is really consistent with a much more specialized um, wool production. We see um, increases in trade. Uh, we see increases in exchange. So I wouldn't want to, people to see, you know, there's this notion that the Middle Ages are the Dark Ages. And I would argue that that period between, let's say, about 450 and about 600 is really a period of change and a period of flux, but it's not something that leads to a kind of you know, devolution, for lack of a better term. It's really a short-term um, uh, transition period between the end of the Roman period and the beginning of what would become the medieval world. Right, but, but I guess it sounds like, and again, mm -hmm. your study is... Uh, I'd like to hear more about sure. how you're getting these interpretations, but it sounds like you know the Romans came to an end. Uh, there was this transition period, and then, in a sense, that same cycle starts up again because it seems like it's starting to move to again a little bit more of an, an exchange system. That it, while it might not have emerged into complex societies, certainly the, the raw fundamentals of a market economy were again starting to form once this transition had had reached a certain stage. Can we say that? I think we can, and I think we can also say that we see maybe the reappearance of the beginnings of state formation, because a right. lot of things start to happen in the 7th and 8th centuries of the Common Era that really mark sort of the beginnings of what I see as emerging as the medieval world. Um, this is the point at which, um, first of all, Christianity was reintroduced um, in the end of the 6th century, beginning in Kent. Um, so that's, you know, one big change because, of course, we start then in to begin to pick up documents of the 7th and 8th century, which are important. So we have, you know, a, a bit of a better literary record than we do for the 5th and 6th. Right. The second thing we see is we see what looks like the construction of genealogies uh, for what would become the various powerful Anglo-Saxon rural houses. And a lot of these look like, you know, they go back to um, Germanic gods and some of the intermediate um, characters. They all have sort of alliterative names like Hengst and Horsa that begin with the same consonants and things like that. But it looks like we are seeing the emergence of what really is the beginnings of state formation. We start to see in the architecture beginning in um, after 600 some, real, some things that really begin to look like high-status sites. Um, there is, um, you know, one of these, um, there, one of these has recently been excavated in the southeast. You have one in York, you know, where you're seeing things that really look like holes, the kind of thing that you might, um, you might read about in um, Beowulf. We see um, the emergence of the kingdoms. We see real, the beginnings of markets, and we can identify these um, one of the things that's happened in the UK since the 90s is the uh, portable antiquities scheme. And this means that people who go out with metal detectors are encouraged to report the finds of coins and other metal objects, and these are cataloged. And if you start plotting those, you can begin to see um, sites that have produced um, coinage and other metalwork, suggesting you're seeing the beginnings of sites that we're marketing. So it really is kind of a transition phase and then really a, a rebirth of um, state formation and even the beginnings of urbanism, but in a very different form, in what is really a medieval form as opposed to a Roman form. So let's, let's go back to mm -hmm. how the 
faunal assemblages, how are the animal assemblages either confirming or bolstering the trends that you're seeing in the broader society based on how they've changed and how they're utilized and ultimately how they're eaten? Well, this, that's a great question. And I'll give you one really good example, and my colleague from Britain, Naomi Sykes, was one of the people to point this out. Um, if you look at those early pagan Saxon folks from the 5th and 6th centuries, it looks like when they're hunting, it really is a supplement to their diet, that they're mostly relying on domestic animals, cattle, sheep, and pigs, mm-hmm. but they occasionally go out and bag a deer or a hare or something else. When you get to the 8th and 9th century, what you start to see is that the deer bones are really associated with the higher status sites. And it Mm -hmm. looks like the beginnings of hunting as a prestige activity rather than something that is simply done to augment or um, the diet, Mm -hmm. which, you know, implies... Um, really notions of power and control. And this we can see, you know, for example, I worked at Brandon, which is a high-status Middle Saxon site, and we right. do have quite a bit of deer, um, something we don't. And the other places that we've seen a lot of deer are some of the high-status ecclesiastical sites as well. So a real change in the role of hunting between that early and that Middle Saxon period. And, of course, these are the sorts of things that appear in the literature. Absolutely. They appear in the literature somewhat later, but we can really confirm, you know, we see this certainly in the high medieval literature, um, 12th, 13th, 14th century, where, you know, the hunt is something that is described in great detail about how it takes place and how the animal is cut up and who gets what. Um, And we see, you know, the emergence of deer parks that are restricted to the king or to the nobility. But the beginnings of this really is um, in the um, 7th and 8th century, which is kind of interesting. And And so, yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. And I was going to say, so it really suggests that, you know, we're seeing a society that really is transformed and one where social difference is being marked in terms of diet and activities. And so this is basically bringing us into into the medieval period. Into the medieval into the, period, that's exactly right. right. And, and then, um, and then you're sort of starting to get the outlines of again that a lot of what what a lot of people are familiar with by uh, even looking at movies from uh, from the 1930s where they depict Robin Hood and and like you had mentioned, of course, Beowulf, which was a little earlier, mm-hmm. and talking about these hunting parties and talking about the structure of land and land ownership where essentially the fiefdoms start to get established. Exactly. And, you know, I think the point to be made is that much of what we would see from that, from like Robin Hood, is really, you know, the time of King John, this is 13th century. Right. The origins of that medieval world are back in the 7th and 8th century. Clearly. There's a term that early medieval archaeologists use. It's called the long 8th century, and it kind of goes from the later 7th century into the 9th. And this is where we really begin to see those changes in hunting behavior, in animal husbandry, in agriculture, that really mark you know, that transition into the beginning of what I would see as the medieval world that we're mostly familiar with from you know, the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries of the Common Era. And that's where I think archaeology helps, because for this period, we still don't, frankly, have a whole lot of documentation. Right. And so, really, a lot more of what we're understanding is coming out of the archaeology. It's at this point that you also see, um, for the first time in the post-Roman world, 
trading towns established um, in Southampton, in York, in Ipswich, and at a number of other sites, um, Quintovic in France, on the other side of the English Channel. So really intense, um, increasing intensity of trade, both local trade and regional and international trade. Um, at Ipswich, for example, where I've worked, what we see is the establishment of the first really industrial pottery industry in the post-Roman world, that this stuff is being turned on a slow wheel, it's being fired in kilns rather than in bonfires, and it is being traded throughout East Anglia and into the high-status sites in the other parts of eastern England. And we will be back with this very fascinating discussion on faunal analysis and the use of extensive studies of animal bones to interpret changes in history, and especially for that very poorly known time frame between the Roman and the medieval periods. We've been talking about England, but we will explore other parts of the world. We'll be back after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schultenrein, and our program today is focused on the applications of animal bone analysis, alternatively called faunal analysis in in our profession of archaeology. And uh, my guest today, Dr. Pam Crabtree, is a pioneer 
in this type of research, and for the first couple of segments, we have been discussing the potential of animal bone research to inform on changes in diet, in subsistence, in landscape, and in the general evolution of societies. Her particular area of expertise when she began her career was in... Uh, going from uh, the Roman period in England to the post-Roman Anglo-Saxon and into the medieval period in that part of the world, which clearly was a major uh, series of developments that uh, fashioned the way we uh, functioned and way uh, where, you, where European civilization certainly ultimately evolved. Um, she has also worked on the continent in Europe, and one of the interesting items that she has... Uh, concentrated on recently is the emergence of cities and specifically how cities have grown in Europe and what the bones tell us about that and particularly she has worked in the city of Antwerp in Belgium. Pam, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your work in research in urban archaeology and faunal analysis vis-a-vis -vis informing about that? Sure, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Well, um you know, I, as you, as you mentioned, my early interest was in the Roman post-Roman transition, but in, as my career progressed and I had some opportunities, I've really, in the last uh, number of years, become interested in the rebirth of towns in the post-Roman West. Um, and the reason for that is really goes back to the archaeology of the middle 20th century, where one of the fundamental problems was understanding what the Gordon Child called the Urban Revolution. And so much of the work that had been done was focused on um, areas like Mesopotamia, Egypt, um, uh, Mexico, and Central America. And a lot of archaeologists had really avoided um, medieval Europe because it basically they saw, oh, that's just secondary uh, urbanism, secondary state formation. They had the Romans there first. And what the archaeology that has been done in many parts of Roman Northern Europe, um, not just Britain, has shown is that many of these, most of these Roman towns essentially lost their urban character in the post-Roman period. And by using um, archaeology and combining it with the sources that we have, we can really understand the rebirth of towns in the West. And I had done a lot of work on Ipswich um, in the 1990s, and I had given a paper on Ipswich at a conference two years ago, and my Belgian colleague Tim Bellens came up to me and said, gee, would you be interested in working in some contemporary material with Antwerp? And I thought, oh boy, that would be fabulous. Um, and he and I had scheduling issues, so I finally got to do the work this summer. But basically what we are working on is a rescue excavation that was carried out downtown in Antwerp in the very oldest part of the city and really looking at the animal bones from that um, earliest medieval period from the late 8th to the 10th century of the Common Era. It sits in an area that had some Roman settlement, although the center of it is probably not right there, and the nature of it, whether it is um, uh, settlements, burials, is not so clear. You then have on top of that a sort of darker um, sediment, which is early medieval, and which suggests that the area was used as farmland and pasture land. This is capped, and then you get the very beginnings of the city of Antwerp in the late 8th, 9th, and 10th century. 
And what's really interesting about the antwerp data is that when we look at the domestic animals, cattle, sheep, goat, um, pigs, horses, the species ratios are very much like what I had discovered in the contemporary material from Ipswich, which I thought was really interesting. But the early medieval stuff from um, Antwerp has in its, in its minor elements a very, at least, um, rural character to it. We have um, red deer. We have roe deer. We have beaver. Uh, we have crane. We have a number of wild animals. However, one of the interesting things is that a lot of what we get in terms of the beginnings of craft activity, there is a lot of worked antler from the site. And um, most of this is not bone, it's antler. So at least some of the deer are probably coming in as sources for antler. And we do have a lovely um, deer skull where you can see both of the antlers have been sawn off. But we also have postcranial deer as well. So it's a really interesting contrast to what um, we see in the early British um, urban sites where we just don't see a lot of hunting. There is clearly some evidence for hunting going on. And we have a nice collection of wild boar material as well as part of the pig data, which is kind of fun. So what accounts for that? It's, you know, this is what we're working on now, and we're really, in terms of the science, we're part of a multidisciplinary, multinational team. The insect work is being done in Ireland. The pollen work is being done in the U.K. The faunal work is being done by an American. The interpretive archaeology is being done by a Belgian, and we're trying to put these things together. Um, mm -hmm. Some of this, I think, you know, and I'm just guessing now because we're still really working on it, but may suggest that you are looking for a lot more forested area in the area surrounding Antwerp than what we're seeing in the British data. Um, and because I just, for example, I have never seen in anything I have done British and medieval any wild pig at all. And I would say that from the Antwerp data, about maybe 10% of the pig is probably wild, mm -hmm. which is interesting. We've got quite a bit of deer in there, you know, both the antlers and the postcranial material. We've got beaver, which certainly would suggest a very wetland environment. And again, Literally, this is yeah. right down by the river, so that's not surprising as well. And I know even, and this is where, you know, good well-informed um, excavators help a lot because I had gotten the word that somebody had seen beaver in the assemblage and in fact there are several pieces of beaver quite a bit of it postcranial in the material that I looked at. So you're starting to look at a very close connection between what uh, what people were hunting and, and, and the immediate landscape that and they And the landscape around in. them. Right. And, and then so we also we have um, some pollen work that I just saw this morning that we're trying to um, figure out. We have some insect materials that may tell us about um, some of the areas around the houses themselves and what kinds of activities were going on. And the next thing we really want to do is break. I treated the assemblage initially as, you know, I recorded it context by context, but looked at it as a unified whole, and one of the things we'd like to be able to do is see, are these beaver bones coming from certain specialized contexts? Are the deer coming from certain specialized contexts? Are there changes through time between the 9th and the 10th century? And that's really because this is very much an ongoing project, what we're working on now. 
and and uh, you know eventually like you say it, it, it this this entire uh system this entire location central place whatever you want to call it is emerging into into antwerp right into antwerp and, this is absolutely these are the foundations this is the oldest part of the city and this is what will become medieval antwerp right uh, so example, eventually you're going mm-hmm. to be looking at the real key changes in all these assemblages that tell you how the contemporary city was fashioned. Absolutely. For example, I know that there's ongoing research at an 11th century site that will follow on from the work that we're doing. We also have, cutting through our early deposits, a deep sort of 16th century, you know, Queen Elizabeth in Britain's terms period pit that is really very different. Um, It's got lots of... um, oceanic fish, it's got things like cod, it's got a lot of systematically butchered sheep, very different from this early medieval material. But we can really, um, you know, through the kind of work that's going on with the city, trace the origins and development of what was the later medieval and modern town and became, you know, one of the most important towns in the Low Countries. Right. And uh, this is a long-standing operation, a long-standing excavation? Well, this is, these are, because it's urban, these are bits and pieces where they have done rescue work in advance of new construction. Very much like what we do. Ab- exactly like what, what you guys are doing in New York City. Absolutely the same thing. And so, but by piecing together all these different bits, we can eventually pick up a, um, a pattern of change. And this is basically the same thing that we did in Ipswich back in the 80s and 90s, that they, a series of rescue excavations were carried out at different sites in advance of urban renewal, construction, um, demolition, and by using them, we can basically trace the development of Ipswich from about um, the 7th century CE right up until the 12th. And I think uh, one of the points that we'd like to point out uh, as we discuss how we start to assemble information rather than just uh, pick out isolated pockets in a particular location, we assemble and we synthesize, not through a grand design, but because we are permitted to go in various parts of the urban setting, do the specific type of work that we do, and then we have the opportunity to put it all together by essentially connecting the dots. That's right. That's exactly right. It's, it's connecting the dots. And it's, a, and it's a long and slow process. I mean, the Ipswich work, um, the excavations were mostly in the 1980s and late 70s. Um, I did the formal work in the 90s, and we are finally at the point where we're going to put together the monograph that will try to bring all this material together. So it's a long, slow process. But it is terrifically important because if we don't get in there and do the mitigation and do the archaeology, this will be lost forever. And yeah. we will never be able to synthesize any of this. will never be able to do it again. Exactly. Right. Because once you take it out, it's gone. It's gone. That's right. If, some, if somebody digs it up without the rescue archaeology, it's just destroyed forever. That's right. And we are all confronting that problem these days in this age of sustainability. We will be back with our final segment with Dr. Baham Crabtree after these words. Please stay tuned. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. 
It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Our guest for the hour is Dr. Pam Crabtree, who is an associate professor of anthropology at New York University, who, and her work has taken her all over the world, and uh, specifically looking at what the animal bone record or faunal analysis contributes to our understanding of archaeology and general developments in the human condition. We have been discussing her work in the British Isles, specifically in southeast England, and then moved over to uh, an urban archaeological situation in Belgium. And most recently, you have been working at a site in Ireland called Dunalinia, which uh, combines a variety of different types of disciplines in addition to um, faunal analysis, specifically doing uh, geophysics, which is one of the things we have discussed on the program before, as well as magnetometry work. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your work at that site and how you're integ- integrating the various uh, sub-disciplines for interpretive purposes? Oh, this is, uh, thank you for asking this. Um, I have been working at Dunalanya since 1972. Um, and to give you a little bit of background, Dunalanya is an Irish Iron Age site. And the Iron Age generally is the period from about 600 BCE to about 400 CE. And it is poorly known. Um, 20 years ago, one of the most famous of the Irish archaeologists wrote a book called The Enigma of the Irish Iron Age. Uh-huh. And the problem is that we have the period of the early medieval period from the 5th through the 12th centuries, where Ireland had um, basically the earliest um, written literature in Europe outside of Greece and Rome, um, where literacy was introduced with St. Patrick, and where we have a wealth of historic documentation. And uh, 
40, 50 years ago, people thought that you could use the, um, the early medieval documents as a kind of window on the Iron Age. But in fact, um, archaeology and history have shown us that these documents really belong to the early medieval period. And if we want to understand sort of how um, early Irish civilization came um, into being, we really need to understand this enigmatic Iron Age site. And Donalanya is one of four sites in Ireland that are known as the Irish royal sites. And again, if you read the early medieval literature, they're described as sort of seats of kings, but in fact they're not residences. They appear to be ritual and ceremonial sites. They sit on really visible hilltops in different parts of Ireland. Ours is um, about 30 miles southwest of Dublin. Um, and in the case of our site, it would have been um, initially in the Iron Age used for a series of three successive huge timber constructions. Um, and then those were all demolished in turn, probably built and demolished in the period of a little over a century. And then the site seems to have been the locus for intensive ritual feasting. And that's where the um, animal bones came in, because um, I initially worked on the um, animal bones from the original excavations that took place in the late 1960s and 1970s. Um, and basically what we see from that is that there's a real focus on um, prestige animals, cattle and pig, and on unusual animals that normally don't form part of the diet, um, in the case of our site, particularly horse. And the problem we faced was that um, basically um, my, Bernard Wales, who was my Ph.D. advisor, sadly now deceased, had spent eight long seasons at Dunalanya. And because the site's big, um, it's about 13 hectares, he had excavated a little less than 10% of the site. And no one was going to give us the money to um, excavate for 80 years to get the rest of the site <laughs> done. So um, right. basically teaming up with our Irish colleagues, we carried out um, three seasons of magnetometry across the remaining site um, so that we were able to see a number of features that simply weren't visible on the ground. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what magnetometry does? Okay, uh, basically what you are doing here, and Joe, your GOR can probably can do this better than I do, but um, essentially what you are looking at is slight deviations um, in the Earth's magnetic field that can re result from a number of archaeological um, manifestations. One of them, of course, can be the presence of iron metals in the ground, and another one can be you will get changes if you have pits that have been excavated and then filled in. And, of course, much of what we saw in the original excavation were these trenches that had, um, would have had upright post holes that were then um, removed and filled in. And so one of the things that we can see from the magnetometry is we can see an outer palisade that surrounds the site, something that we were you know, completely unaware of when we dug the center of the site for eight seasons. Uh, we can see an anomaly in a feature that is known as St. John's Well. And this is interesting because it's supposed to, since the 19th century, have kind of magi um, magical properties. Uh -huh. It um, is um, basically, it is a natural depression that has been sort of enlarged and dug out on one side. And while it's not really a well, it will hold water when it rains. 
we see an anomaly there. It's conceivable that that's just bedrock, but it's also possible. You know, we know that the Irish Iron Age people used watery places as places of deposition. So we would love to go back and, you know, put a small test trench in there and see what's going on. Um, we also have several circular structures that appear are possibly burials, which would suggest an additional function for the site, and if not, are conceivably even animal pens. So we would like to do some test excavation. We would like to do some phosphate testing, but we would like to... Our problem really is is that we saw a number of really interesting features in the magnetometry. But the magnetometry, we can show us where the features are, but they can't tell us the date of the features Right. And they can't tell us the full content of the features. So we really need to be able to go back and excavate. So my colleague Susan Johnston at George, Del- George Washington University, who's the head of the project, she and I have been writing a lot of grant applications with the hopes that we will be able to get back to Ireland in the next couple of years. And so uh, the work continues. The work and- continues. I started working there in 1972, which was the year I entered graduate school, and 40-something years later, I'm still working there. And if you had asked me um, in the 70s if I thought that I would still be working at Westow and at Dunallen, you know, 40-something years later, I would have thought you were nuts, but the reality is that the work continues. But the re- magnificent part of all of it is we are so much farther along in terms of what we can say and what kind of hypotheses we can formulate than we were all those 40 years ago. And now we at least have a lot of direction in what we're doing, and this goes for archaeology generally. And certainly in your your subdiscipline, the faunal work, the magnetometry, these are now uh, sophisticated technologies and approaches that are being used, and uh, we're all the richer for it. I want to thank Pam Crabtree for being part of this this program today and um, all the best Pam and oh, I'm thank sure you so will, much it's delightful to be here and I'm sure we'll be hearing more from you in the upcoming seasons and thanks very much to all of you for listening and uh, stay well and stay attentive to the archaeology because it tells you about your past and where you're going thank you so much Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.